0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Paul Riesbendel.
1: Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here.
0: And today, uh, we're going to jump in and talk a little bit about network neutrality, the open internet, the rules, which were once in place just a few years ago, beginning in 2015, to guarantee that all of us could get the content equally on the internet, that our internet provider could not unfairly throttle or block what we receive, meaning they couldn't decide that one day you can get Netflix and the next day you can't. Or maybe more importantly, one day you can get Netflix when the other day you can't get some new upstart company trying to challenge the Netflix throne and provide independent content to you and say, well, we're going to charge them more to reach you than we charge Netflix and therefore uh, you, you, you can't get it as easily. That's the kind of rules preventing that that were in place beginning in 2015, uh, put in place by the Obama-era FCC. The Trump-era FCC undid those rules, made its own explanations as to why it was doing so, and, not unsurprisingly, has been challenged in court by a coalition of public interest groups and states' attorneys general, and the lead plaintiff is Firefox, Mozilla Mozilla Foundation, the people who make the Firefox browser, and the reason we're talking about it today is because they were just in court in front of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals where the FCC was called on to defend itself. Why did it undo net neutrality regulations that had barely been in place for, for two years?
1: Yeah, um, we're, t- we're talking today with a friend of the show, an expert on Federal Communication Commission, uh, Professor Christopher Terry, who sat down and listened. We didn't ask him how. What is that, a web They record it, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Christopher Terry was there for the full uh, multi-hour arguments. He listened to both sides. Uh, he said it was more fun than than usual, which is interesting. <laughs> it was more interesting than usual, more questions asked by the judges. Uh, some things you should know uh, before we jump into the interview. Uh, we should talk about what Title II is, which we've gone over on Raider Survivor a lot because it's a technical term that is... Uh, necessary language to understand the net- network neutrality fight of our era of our century
0: title II is the part of communications law in the united states which covers common carrier so basically it covers communications technology that's looked at like a utility telephones are considered a utility
1: yeah it's a real 20th century
0: it's concept. a very 20th century concept and the rules were written in the twentieth century, yeah, and the rules that initially applied it to the internet—the first were half in the of United the twentieth century, century yeah. right? And what had happened is that the FCC in the twenty-first century decided that the internet no longer uh, would be covered under Title II rules; that it was not actually a utility; that it would be called something else. And then, on in during the Bush era, tried to sort of implement. Network neutrality provisions tried to begin to pass regulations which would provide uh, these protections to us as Internet consumers yeah. and to people who want to pr- provide services on the Internet. And the court said, no, you can't do that because the Internet is no longer Title II. You declassified it. You mm. changed the classification and you cannot regulate it in this way. As long as it is not Title II, and the FCC bent over backwards over the course of many years into the Obama era, and even uh, Commissioner Webster, who was the chairman under F- uh, the second chairman under under President Obama, still bent over backwards to find ways in which they could implement open internet rules without. ...putting it under Title II. Title II protections. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals told the FCC, when it was challenged, in uncertain terms, if there's going to be network neutrality, if there will be open Internet rules, you must classify the Internet as Title II. And so in that final order in 2015 that the FCC passed that created network neutrality, they reclassified the Internet as Title II. Because the court told them this is the only way you can square that circle. This is what the Trump-era FCC under Commissioner Ajit Pai as chairman undid, claiming things like, well, this provision, having done this, caused uh, infrastructure investments to go down. It causes all these problems, right? right? This is the evidence which they called to bear, in which we'll hear from Professor Christopher Terry. They were called on to prove <laughs> they say well where is this evidence and in some cases uh we're putting kind of a bind in having to to justify their arguments that there was a decrease in broadband infrastructure deployment uh under this title II regulation under the open internet rules uh that that happened when it seems as though in fact maybe that didn't actually happen. that's what gets us to here and so that's why we're talking about Title II, which the Internet is no longer classified as by the FCC, uh, as of the Pai Trump era administration. So
1: that's why we talked to yeah. we Professor talked to, Christopher Terry. We talked to Christopher Terry, assistant professor of media law at the University of Minnesota Hubbard School of Journalism and Mass Communication.
0: Professor Christopher Terry, uh, the Federal Communications Commission was just in court, recently being called on account to defend its recent move to get rid of network neutrality, uh, what what happened there? I know you've listened to the testimony and dug deeply in there. Um, what what happened to the FCC lawyers there in court?
2: Well, the uh, the entire experience last Friday, the uh, on uh, January 29th, was uh, was kind of a as D.C. Circuit uh, oral arguments go, kind of epic. They were there for about four and a half hours. The petitioners led by the Mozilla company who brought the case um, were given a lot of time to argue, as were the states and the other providers that were out there were all given a a really good shot, which is not, not that normal when you have an intervener like that. They usually just get a little bit of short amount of time so the court can hear them and ask them a few questions, but... Impressively, the panel dug in pretty deep on some fairly technical questions, and um, while it didn't go real well for the FCC lawyers, I thought the court was fair to both sides and asked some really tough questions about both uh, about both sides' positions. I uh, I know I'm biased. Uh, I'm certainly in favor of the Title II approach, but I don't think the FCC's lawyers had a lot of good answers to the questions that were asked of them.
0: And so, what kind of questions did the court ask? Uh, the Federal Communications Commission lawyers um, on, on, on getting them to defend the fact that uh, the current FCC undid the open internet rules that were put in place by the Obama era, uh, Webster era FCC, uh, basically undoing uh, a whole framework for uh, network neutrality. What, what questions did the FCC have to answer to that?
2: Well, the FCC was kind of put on the spot um, on a couple of Pretty important points. The first is the issue of transparency. The 2017 order relies a lot on the idea that Internet companies can do anything that they want to you in terms of blocking throttling or paid prioritization as long as they tell you up front they're going to do it. And the court seemed real skeptical of how that worked in practice, which I was pretty amazed by the level of the questioning on that. That questioning went both ways, by the way. They, they asked the petitioners about it, too.
0: And the petitioners but, being the folks who are challenging the FCC.
2: Right. Um, there was a lot of questions about whether or not there could be a functional transparency system. And then to the FCC, there was a lot of questions about how it worked in practice, and the FCC's idea that this is the solution to this problem, that we, as long as people disclose what they're doing is the answer, uh, it just didn't seem to fly very well in the, in, under the face of scrutiny. So to speak,
0: and, and did the FCC but, uh, offer up any sort of explanation on how, like, I would know if my cell carrier or my my home uh, internet provider were throttling or uh, or blocking anything? Did they offer up how I would know that and get, get consent?
2: Um, no, mm-hmm. they basically rely on the fact that the companies are allowed to change and update the terms as necessary. And then provide you some sort of notice, but I mean there were even oh you mean that little
0: document that that I have to read with a magnifying glass that came you know with my welcome packet or comes with a bill every every eighteen months or something like that that that's what they mean
2: (laughs) yeah in fact that was actually how the court pretty much posed the question to the FCC you know where where is this disclosure and I I think the exact language that. One of the panel judges asked, "Was is this, is, is this going to be buried on page 32 of a, you know, a 65 page document that very few people are going to read? And the FCC said, well, yeah, as long as it's disclosed, you know, it's OK. So, I mean, there was a lot of tough questions. But I think where the FCC is in deep, deep trouble here is on the issue of first responders and on the issue of empirical evidence. They're they're in hot water on this, and I I suspect, however, else the order comes back, you'll at least get a partial remand on those two points. So
0: and, and so, uh, let's talk about the first responders issue. I mean, these are folks like like uh, firemen, uh, firefighters, police, uh, and other sort of emergency personnel. Correct.
2: Correct. And of course, the debate is really centering right now around what happened with the Verizon cell phones and the firefighters out there on the West Coast. This is in California and, during the recent wildfires this past like year. where their Verizon plan had used up its data and then Verizon began fi- throttling firefighter information yeah. while they and were that,
1: in the field. And that, that story got a lot of news attention, especially in California. We talked about it on Radio Survivor. Christopher Terry, I have a, a technical question that might be dumb. Um, That story in particular was about the mobile internet provided by the corporation Verizon. Uh, I thought that this net neutrality conversation was about the wired internet. Are they separate in these considerations?
2: Um, They were prior to the 2015 order, but they're treated more or less the same now.
1: Because I always assume that because of how things uh, unfolded in, in the history of our country, that... That this internet that we all have, if we are lucky enough to have uh, wirelessly connected telephones that that get the internet, I I thought that that had basically an un an un uh, neutral network that you did pay for fast lane internet access when you're on you know when you're on your smartphone.
2: Yeah, well, that goes to the issue of the empirical evidence where the FCC is in a lot of trouble. Um, The FCC relies on mobile broadband to cover up the fact that there's not really good broadband available. Right. And that's problematic. Um, So mobile and fixed broadband, at least under the 2015 order, have some of the same characteristics. That was not true for net neutrality provisions before the Title II order. But also on the empirical evidence issue, the FCC made a really important argument in their justification for passing the rules in 2017, and that was that it was interfering with broadband deployment, that companies subject to Title II regulations were repealing uh, their efforts to put into place new broadband infrastructure and so on and so forth. The evidence that's come out subsequent to when the FCC did this proves that that's not the case in most situations. And in fact, the FCC got really, got themselves into a real jam here because they were trying to rely on a couple of rare uh, of set aside filings that suggested that when the corporate corporation uh, spokespeople during the same time were saying, well, that wasn't true. We were actually investing more under Title II," And the FCC's lawyer kind of found himself in a jam when the judges asked him, well, who's lying here? <laughs> you know, it's, well, it, it's a significant issue because if the FCC is lying that me or the FCC is misinterpreting the data, excuse me. I wanna accuse anybody of lying, that uh, you know, the the rationale for why they did the twenty seventeen order is invalid and that's arbitrary capricious, it gets it's gonna get thrown out. If it's the company that's lying, well, that's problematic because it's a deceptive public relation in corporate speech, and that involves all sorts of other three letter agents.
0: Yeah, that gets you into investor relations and things like that. Yeah.
2: And the FCC's lawyers did not have a really good answer for that and really kind of talk themselves into a corner. I mean, it, this boils down to exactly the same situation we have seen with media ownership and we've talked about many times when I've been with you guys on the show is that the FCC has an ideology, uh, to deregulate and to push, uh, competition based regulation, but as bad. Allowing, as compet-
1: allowing consolidation of media companies right. further and further homogenizing the media.
2: But as part of this competition philosophy that they're relying on now, they're, they're making some ideological jumps without the empirical evidence to do that. That's certainly been true for, for radio and television, but also now to the Internet, which I suppose shouldn't surprise us. But why that's a real problem is at least in radio, even in highly concentrated markets, there's com- competition, right? In broadband infrastructure, right. there's not. You know, about half of the United States has one broadband provider available to it. Another 15 percent of people don't have any and, you know, 82 percent have two or less competitors to choose from. So it's it puts us into a situation where the FCC can't rely on its empirical data because it doesn't have any or more importantly, it has data that shows the policies it's trying to implement aren't working the way the FCC said. And that makes something arbitrary and capricious under judicial review. It's why the FCC hasn't successfully defended a media ownership policy in 15 years. And it's why we're going to see more of that, I suspect, when it comes to net neutrality coming up here in May or June of this year.
0: And and Professor Christopher Terry, uh, the FCC tried to delay this court date once again, didn't they? I mean, I think their excuse was the government shutdown in this particular case, but they've continually tried to put off this day of reckoning. Isn't that the case?
2: Yeah, they've... uh, Well, with the last round on U.S. Telecom, when the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court, they tried to delay it seven times to run out the clock on that before this case had a chance to go to trial, and then when the Supreme Court didn't grant cert, then the FCC tried to delay this. Now, it's you can their face value was that the government was shut down and they didn't have time to prepare. But this case has been pending since 20, like the day after the order came down in 2017. So that, that goes hold a whole lot. That's
0: of water. sort of like your homework was due on Wednesday, but Wednesday and Thursday were snow days. And so I can't turn it in on one, on Friday, pretty much <laughs> <Right>. pretty much. <laughs> wow. So, you know, I, I understand that trying to interpret, the testimony and questioning in a court of appeals is reading tea leaves but i'm going to ask you to put on your uh your your fortune tellers hat (laughs) professor terry and 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 because you've you've looked at a lot of these proceedings you've looked at a lot of court and listened to a lot of court testimony uh you are a very informed person and a studied person in this area What's the sense you're getting here? What What do you think are some possible outcomes from this, from the Court of Appeals, in in listening to the challenge of the FCC getting rid of net neutrality?
2: I'm going to stick with my original prediction, which I made in November of 2017, that the order will be declared arbitrary and capricious because both of APA procedure that the FCC very clearly violated, in terms of making the rules. But also the lack of empirical evidence that the FCC has to support this decision is also going to interfere with their ability to give deference. So I think it'll be 2 one, and the entire yeah. order will be remanded to the commission. And I, um, um, that's my prediction.
0: So it's so a two one. so it's a three judge panel. And so you think there yep. are two judges likely to find against the FCC? and you got one, one judge who you think is more uh, gives more deference to the, to the commission?
2: Um, Yeah, I think Judge Williams will uh, he's sort of notorious for agency deference as sort of his forward position and his questioning sort of reflected that during the uh, oral arguments last week. So I wouldn't be surprised. I I could see a two one with a dissenting in part and a uh, concurring in part, depending on who writes the decision. But. Um, I would be very skeptical to think that the FCC walks away with this with a functional plan from their 2017 effort. I could be wrong. I mean, it is it is very hard to predict the tea leaves, but the questions that went to the FCC did not have good answers from the FCC lawyers. And that always goes bad for the FCC. Remember that the the effort here really is on the FCC to defend what it does. Right. The And that's not... By design, it's not easy for an administrative agency to defend rules that it makes one way or the other. Ah. It's why the FCC lost in the Comcast and Verizon decisions on earlier efforts on net neutrality because it didn't do what it was supposed to do, or didn't do what it was supposed to do in the way it was supposed to do it. So even in a even in a normal situation where the FCC isn't acting against itself. Nor uh, trying to operate in a situation in which the evidence is a little shaky. It's hard for the agency to actually come up with a rule that withstands judicial scrutiny. It, it's, it's not as hard as it used to be, but it, it's still very difficult for an agency to defend it. It's got to be on really solid ground to do so.
0: Right. Because in this particular case, the FCC is defending the fact that it
1: overturned uh, an order that was, you know, the, the ink was barely dry yeah. on it. Well, because we have, we have, uh, the FCC, with the head appointed by uh, Republican Donald Trump, overturned the ruling of the FCC with the head appointed by Democrat Barack Obama. Yeah, uh,
0: putting in place network neutrality, open internet rules, uh, which they had done already in response to previous interactions with the court, in which the court had told them, given them basically an instruction manual, you, you can put in place you know, neutral network rules if you declare that the internet is, is, a, is a basically a common carrier, Title II.
1: A utility.
0: And that's the only
1: way that you can do it.
0: Like, so a, the, FCC, like the
1: phone lines.
0: And it like took the... lots of push and shove, and the
1: FCC finally did it back in 2015. What else is a Title II? Can you answer that in, in 10 Just seconds? Just a
2: traditional phone line or interstate communication networks are all Title II. Do,
1: the, do the, young you guys people even like, know what phone lines are anymore, though? Not in the traditional yeah. way. You guys bring
2: up the most important point. In U.S. Telecom, which is the case that challenged the Title II rules, the courts upheld the FCC's action there, not once, not twice, but three times on review. And the FCC's centerpiece argument for the 2017 decision is that they don't have the authority to inf- enforce those rules. And the courts said so, they do. <laughs> the, not, not once, not twice, but, but three, three times. times. And. That that's I mean, I don't for all the discussion that there's been of this over the last 10 days and even this past week in Congress with the hearing that uh, the Commerce Committee had, there's not uh, not been a lot of discussion of that point is that the FCC is now arguing something that the courts have told it three times is is true, that it FCC says we don't have the authority to enforce title two rules. Well, the court disagreed with that in u.s telecom three times and also told the fcc that title II was the way to do this back in the verizon decision and this so is the same dc circuit court yeah right? it's the same court right yeah, so, so they,
0: they have a memory yeah. they remember what they did
2: <laughs> yeah and uh, to be fair there wasn't a lot of discussion of that point in the orals uh-huh. um i think that's uh, it came up it was discussed but the the discussion centered around the FCC saying that we believe currently we do not have the authority to do that. So I suspect that that's going to play a really important role in the ultimate outcome here, because it's very hard to make that argument, especially because it's not that old of law, right? The decision in the of the Supreme Court not to grant certain U.S. telecom happened, uh, you know, late in December of 2017. So it's not. Uh, you know it's not not that old it's yeah. uh i mean it was well, 2018 excuse me it was late in 2018 that the fcc uh was told by the supreme court basically we agree with the lower court here and there's no point in discussing this you have the authority to do this so
1: professor Christopher terry i under as i understand this situation the reason why network neutrality is being uh decided now in the courts and why the fcc comes, you know, makes these contradictory decisions depending on who's in charge. It's all because Congress hasn't acted, right? We haven't had legislation to uh, to put network neutrality into law, which wouldn't, I mean, that would be easier, I guess, than what's going on.
2: Well, if Congress directed the agency to act one way or the other, that would dictate what the FCC is allowed to do. Right now, the FCC is operating... The internet regulation that it engages in, as if it were 1996. Right, and part of why we're talking about Title II is that Title II is a traditional old full line, which is how in 1996 they envisioned the internet because that's what the internet was in 1996.
1: And I mean, is it like what are the chances of uh, of laws being passed, sort of moving us past this weird? I mean, we're we're sort of stuck in time. We, you know, here on Raider Survivor, Christopher Terry, we have you on. We talk about where network neutrality is going and it's stuck. It's stuck in the courts. And I'm wondering if there's ever like an escape valve. Yeah. Legislatively, like, could uh, this new Democrat controlled Congress care about this issue? It's not a Democrat. Right. The House House controlled. uh,
2: There were uh, there were three bills discussed yesterday. They're all Republican bills. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, lots of the states have passed net neutrality bills. Whether or not the states are allowed to do that will be part of the uh, decision in Mozilla. The FCC is saying was just
0: heard. Yeah,
2: yeah. The FCC is saying we have the right to override state state law, but we don't have any authority to enforce net neutrality. That's a fairly contradictory position. But I mean, the the states are picking up the slack while the feds are fighting over this. But tell us about the answer to this problem has always been for Congress to get together and tell the FCC one way or the other what it wants it to do.
1: Right. Tell us a little bit about, I know that there's something interesting happening in, in your home state of Minnesota.
2: Yes, there's a bill that's been introduced in the state of Minnesota that uh, would make it illegal for the state to do business with an Internet service provider that uh, engages in the one of the three primary uh net neutrality issues, that of, uh, net neutrality in terms of blocking throttling or paid prioritization. Uh, the bill itself has some language in it that, that was obviously borrowed from an earlier net neutrality provision, the 2011, uh, provision, but the Minnesota state legislature is actually supposed to pick that one up. It's a, it's a reasonable bill. It, it, uh, it isn't worded the way I would have worded it had I written it, but, uh, they have, I'm not quite that popular yet, I guess. And, um, But uh, it's it's the model bill that's starting to float around in lots of state legislatures. In fact, Minnesota was one of the 22 states that sued the FCC over the 2017 rules. So, right here in my backyard, it's gotten uh, the issue certainly hasn't died, and we're in Comcast's uh, So
1: it could have been Minnesota versus FCC instead of Mozilla versus FCC.
2: Yeah. We, uh, the state Minnesota, uh, Lori Swanson signed on, uh, after some of the other states brought the suit. Mozilla got to be the lead plaintiff in the case cause they were the first ones to sue the FCC and DC circuit. So, but, uh, Mo- Minnesota is definitely a party to the case.
0: And so now we are waiting for the D.C. Circuit of Appeals to release uh, its judgment on this case, Mozilla v. FCC, on network neutrality. Do you have any sense of what our timeline is there?
2: I would think uh, late May or early June would be uh, the most likely time. It could be quicker than that. I suspect that will not be the case. But uh, uh, the D.C. Circuit releases opinions on Tuesdays and Fridays, and I guarantee I'll be checking every Tuesday and Friday to see if there's an opinion on it. so And if,
0: and if they decide against over. the – sorry, go ahead.
2: I was going to say it's not over and it's likely to eventually end up in the Supreme Court before it's done.
0: Right. So if, if the uh, D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals decides against the FCC and its repeal of network neutrality, obviously the, uh, the FCC then can appeal that decision to the full circuit, right, which is the full panel yeah. of judges, more than three, and if they continue to decide against the
1: FCC, they can appeal to the Supreme Court. Wow. So we currently – there's no way to predict which Supreme Court they'll be appealing to. I mean the U.S. Supreme Court, but what yes. is the makeup oh, of yes. said court and well, how friendly is it to corporate business interests?
2: Importantly, you don't want the case to go to the Supreme Court because it's likely to end in a 4-4 tie um, because Justice Kavanaugh – Wrote a dissenting opinion in the earlier net neutrality case. He's probably going to have to recuse himself when the case goes up oh, to the Oh, he wrote Supreme.
0: a dissenting opinion when he was before he was on the Supreme Court,
2: right? When he was on the D.C. Circuit, he wrote a dissenting opinion in the End Bank decision. Got it. Uh, full panel decision in U.S. Telecom, and you can bet—you know—you can bet that either side is going to be reluctant to have him involved uh,
1: because of that. Buckle up. Yeah. Fascinating. The only, that's the, only, that's
2: the word.
0: only the fate of the internet hangs in the balance. Professor Christopher Terry from the university of Minnesota. Thank you so much for joining us and helping us, helping us untangle
2: what just happened. No problem. Anytime.
1: Well, here we are again. Uh, the story, <laughs> the story of network neutrality has not yet been fully written. Uh, it's, it's being decided in the court's, Again, and uh, and we wait, we wait to see. And meanwhile, um, meanwhile, it's up in the air because, well, like, I mean, what the Internet is, is sort of it is now- both up
0: in the air and not. So right now there are not open Internet rules. There is not network neutrality in the United States. Of course, anyone who might uh, have plans around what they might do under the new set of rules would probably wait to implement it, be- right. because you don't want to all of a sudden have to reverse course or
1: accidentally see your actions
0: used against you in court. So it does yeah. really or put even, everybody in or, a waiting or period. even create
1: a giant news story that sort of moves politicians to act. Right. Yeah. So everyone's sort of waiting with bated breath. But I, you know, I wanted
0: to. I like to mention why we
1: care here at Radio Survivor. You know,
0: this is a show. Ostensibly- what is
1: network neutrality? It's in 2019. You don't have to define it the same way you had to in 2012. No. For but, most audiences, but it's still there's always a, well, but I, I think it's to say why we
0: care, right? Because yeah. we care about uh, grassroots communication. We care about amazing radio made by college students, made by community members. Amazing podcasts made by people who are looking to serve their community or who
1: are looking to yeah. create great art. I would include also uh, we care about future businesses or concepts that that could use the internet to, to replicate why community radio matters to us. It doesn't have to be a radio station to still be important to people like us. It's, you know, groups of people could get together and create community media using the internet tools that are available, and network neutrality uh, would make that possible, so and, much and a of, lack of it might destroy the possibility. Yeah,
0: so much of the growth of the internet as a medium, as a, as a medium for mass media is built on this idea that it in some ways flattened down democratized right. yours and my access
1: to an audience especially compared to what came before it with right. you know t- television screens even print media and the radio there's a lot more of a, a narrow of, beam
0: because it required either tons of capital investment or it required getting a license right a license which by its very nature was hard to get which, which was not freely available to just anyone who'd like to have one. And while on the internet, it may still be difficult to reach millions of people, right. the fact that you can reach hundreds or thousands of people with your podcast even
1: is sort of revolutionary right. if we compare it to, say, 1989. And what's, yeah, I mean... It's fun to talk about on Radio Survivor what a podcast is when only five people listen to it compared to five million. Mm -hmm. If do do, do five million people listen to any podcasts yet? Yes, cool. I didn't mean to just throw that fact out. Yeah. So, and yet, what's amazing about the internet is that even humble podcasts uh, can go big overnight because. There's no other barrier in their way, yeah. right? I mean, the we, only
0: barrier is people knowing about it and right. wanting to listen we, to it, not their ability to actually access it.
1: We talk about Netflix a lot when we're trying to grasp at stories to explain network neutrality, and there's a lot of reasons. One is that Netflix has, in fact, uh, been targeted by the Internet service providers to uh, to pony up and an extra Netflix chunk of change. And now Netflix has
0: made specific deals with these Internet yeah. providers so that they're not
1: caught back under their heels. But what's fun about Netflix also as an example is just that – um, I don't. I can't remember now when Netflix was born. But there was a time about uh, fifteen years ago where it was just a twinkle in someone's eye. Well, when it was just mailing DVDs yeah. to the mail, and because the internet was what it was, this um one idea was allowed, the room. Because, they, because,
0: you know, while certainly they, Netflix had to invest in the, in the power to deliver yeah. this media over the internet, what they didn't have to do was to pay an additional toll yeah. to every single internet provider because you, as an internet customer, were already paying for that access, right? The idea is that everyone's already paid.
1: There should be no additional tolls on the in-between. Yeah, and that openness is what allows... Uh, independent companies or new companies to do these types of things instead of waiting for the companies that already own the internet to decide how they're going to use it
0: and now we're in an era where a netflix can afford if it's if it has to pay an yeah. extra toll can afford to pay that that's, toll that's
1: what's so fun about the netflix as storytelling mechanism for for net network neutrality is they're a big boy now it's they're not as uh they're they're not the scrappy indie media right <laughs> company but if
0: but if you think of uh a community radio station, a small public radio station, an independent podcaster, right we are now seeing the this emergence of large audio powerhouses whether it's Spotify, right. whether it's iHeartMedia and it's not a matter necessarily that they intend to squeeze out the independent podcasters or they intend to squeeze out the independent radio stations so much that they have the kind of resources and power to negotiate on terms with a Comcast or a Verizon or an AT&T where small players do not have that option. And so if they get priority to reach especially your mobile phone... right where maybe you aren't charged the bandwidth. So maybe it doesn't count against your plan. Who are you going to choose? The 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 player that's on the, the station that's on the iHeart app or the one where you know every megabit every every megabyte is dear, right? And these are the kind of decisions that 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 happen in an unneutral network. And that's why we care about you know, yeah. not in both the, the, the community radio station, the college station, uh, the independent podcaster, the independent video maker, as well as maybe that next startup that is looking to create a new un, unthought of yet channel of, of wonderful, amazing entertainment, information, journalism on the Internet. We want that to
1: still be possible. And that's why we care about network neutrality. It's so funny because... In some ways, for the last 15 or 20 years, you have to be a futurist to care about network neutrality. And but,
0: now you have to be a presentist. But, yeah, but
1: now we've seen a lot of examples. Uh, I, I had the opportunity as a reporter for KPFA to attend uh, an FCC meeting under the Obama era where where evidence was presented that, that throttling, the blocking of certain websites, had taken place. Um, in this case, a real delightful gray area because the website being blocked was uh was 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 it BitTorrent or is one of those Yeah, it was a BitTorrent. It was one of those websites that allows you to pirate uh copyrighted well, BitTorrent material. BitTorrent isn't a website right. so much as it's a,
0: it's a protocol. But
1: what was proven to have been blocked back then in the Obama era FCC was um Edison Reels, recordings of Edison Reels that had been uploaded so completely public domain historical Yeah, historically uh relevant Uh, cool stuff and uh, can't remember which web provider Uh, it was it was throttled and there was proof the fascinating part about this ancient history is that uh, it had to be proven by an activist scientist it was not something that was being readily uh, admitted by the company doing the throttling because you don't always know why you can't get something right
0: websites go down your local service goes down all sorts of things can happen, and to figure out that it's happening because it's being actively blocked or throttled versus just, you know, every day something happened right. uh, takes persistence and takes a certain sort of investigatory impulse and the tools and the
1: knowledge to yeah. do that investigation. I, I, I remember that gentleman's name. I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll look it up. But uh, the guy that did the the proving uh there for the FCC so that they had evidence. Um But yeah— with that in mind, then then we become—we have to start imagining scenarios of what could be blocked and how it could be blocked. I happen to know that uh, I read the New York Times coverage of uh, this particular appeals court argument, and the, the lawyer for Mozilla uh, gave the example of what if the Daily Caller, the conservative website, were blocked by an internet service provider. I, I think that was almost— um, well, I don't want to get into their heads why they chose that particular well, to, example. To
0: show that that while in many cases uh, there are some who characterize uh, network neutrality as a left or liberal right. uh, thing. And in fact, though, when there is discrimination on the Internet, it is not necessarily going to discriminate in one way or another. And often the, the, the discrimination is economic and not political or based on ideas. And so it could impact any number of different uh, websites or platforms, regardless of ideology yeah. and more based upon their ability to pay the
1: piper. I think the important thing to note is that it's also a, um, it's all network neutrality is also an issue of the potential for political censorship or other censorship of ideas. Uh, a neutral network uh, wouldn't have those sorts of bottlenecks. Right.
0: Yeah. They could be based upon uh, that. It wouldn't exist at all. You're listening to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. You just heard from Eric Klein. I'm Paul Mandel. and you can find show notes, learn more about the things we're talking about on today's show at our website, radiosurvivor.com. I this put is something, episode number 179.
1: I want to put something into the show notes that we don't have the um, expertise or bandwidth to talk about, but I read an incredible article about fake comments to the FCC uh Regarding this issue, there's been some recent reporting about uh, the source of these comments that were very um, these comments that were very anti network neutrality, uh, in favor of the move that the FCC was making. And more and more evidence is mounting that um, the source of those comments were uh, illegal or potentially illegal, fake, somehow bot-related. And there's even, forgive me, Paul. There's even been a connection to roger stone thrown out there in this particular article uh not enough of a connection for me to try to explain it but a connection nonetheless i'll we'll have a link to that article in the show notes.
0: yeah that all goes to say that it that when the comments which were filed with the fcc public
1: comments um they were coming over the internet these days
0: overwhelmingly the ones that could be traced back to an actual human being who really put them in um supported an open internet and network neutrality right. and that the ones which were opposing network neutrality supporting what the fcc did to overturn it were bots and in some cases these bots were using the names and email addresses of real people yeah,
1: stolen identities stolen yes. and identity. there's been there's been a lot of reporting lately where um some of those individuals were reached for comment did you have this opinion did you submit it to the fcc because their names and their addresses and their phone numbers are all linked to these comments and those people uh, rejected the notion that they had been involved at all. Uh, it was. It's been fascinating. And why is that important? It's be, you know, as we learned from Matthew Lassar uh, once in the past on Radio Survivor, these FCC comments they matter. Right. They go into the
0: record, and and when the FCC especially is called to account in court, things like public comments yeah. become very. It's important. weird
1: because they're not. You know, some we we, we get we get uh, we get a lot of messaging these days. You know, call your congressman. Write, write emails to support this particular issue. And it's, uh, it's up for debate what the impact is of that communication. But it is public record. But yeah, these, these FCC comments are very much a part of the process and, and can have an influence on the outcome. Yeah, and it's not merely volume, but it's also
0: the arguments raised. So when people testify to a particular fact— saying that i rely on the internet for this or i've experienced some right. sort of throttling or blocking my
1: community group or local you know local government entity has used the internet thusly
0: right These and this imp- is and this is how it would affect us yeah that you know this is actual testimony it's not merely do what i want to see done it is much more than that um and it is part of the record and whether or not the FCC, as in this past case, ignored <laughs> the yeah. testimony of millions of people or or in the case of previous FCCs where the, the testimony was taken more to account. And if you read FCC uh, proceedings, you will find lots and lots of in-text and footnotes where they say, as raised by such and such commenter mm. as such and such person raises and sometimes these are folks known to the fcc maybe lobbyists people work with public interest groups or industry groups but they are also citizens who may have no particular affiliation so you know and that is something which again opposing counsel if you are challenging the fcc if you are mozilla and their lawyers can go into that those right. uh, Comments, which
1: are all public record and all publicly accessible, and pull them out. But what and is ask it? questions about? It's them. like an open question now. What it means as this story develops? It really is a story that is the facts are being gathered. Whether or not it's going to become a larger issue, I have read uh, suggestions that there. Could oh, you be mean about the bots? About yeah, the bots? Yeah. The the fake comments that that there could be congressional hearings. You know, we could. I'm going to speculate wildly. We could see Ajit Pai. You know, have, have to testify, testify. because yeah, he's because been asked. He's been asked direct questions and refused to answer from the reporting I've read.
0: Well, it's it's showing this weakness, which I think we has been a story of the last uh, three years, showing these weaknesses in in things we took for granted about identity on the internet, <laughs> about right, you know, whether it be a group you you saw on Facebook, uh, a post someone shared with you on social media, and now we see it goes all the way to what otherwise seems like an incredibly arcane system right comments to a a regulatory agency about communications policy proceedings seems like
1: something so boring yeah and yeah filling out a form on the web for the government there's nothing that's more that makes your eyes glaze and over. And probably more.
0: previously, no one really thought very hard of, like, well, what do we need to do to ensure this can't be gamed or can't be hacked or can't be otherwise messed with? Because it used to be letters. It used to be letters and it went online. And, you know, and it seemed like, well, who. Who's going to care but this small number of people? And this and network trolley, of course, is one right. of the f- issues
1: that has blown up. Because on the flip the side, system. we know that uh, television hosts have invited their massive audiences like online Oliver. to to use the online comment. You know, they've pointed their audiences at those online comment yeah. sections and said, uh, tell them what you really think. And that's um, been an overwhelming, it's a huge response. But it
0: probably, I imagine the FCC was caught flat footed. Um, I imagine any agency probably would have been caught With these fake comments. Especially with, co- with the fake case. comments. So yeah, it's a fascinating, it's another tendril of a sign a of our times. A developing story, too. It yeah. is very much a developing story. Uh, you can learn more at radiosurvivor.com <laughs> slash podcast. Hey, you got any comments about this? Uh, what do you right. think about all this? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line, podcast at
1: radiosurvivor.com. I was I did want to talk today about asking for comments and uh, lo- a love of radio and just that this that the speaking into microphones and and both having a podcast that people listen to and also a community radio show that's heard on uh, roughly two dozen uh, stations around the United States, um, it's just a a really special privilege. It's not ours alone, right? I'm not I, I'm not claiming it just for me. But one of the best things about it is um, I was you know what happened, Paul, is I was in the car today and I heard a local I heard Kabu and I heard uh, two individuals talking on Kabu about uh, publicly financed elections in the state of Oregon. And it was just um, a passionate activist host and a very passionate knowledgeable uh, politi- you know politically involved guest discussing a really important issue in a way that gave that issue so much time. Mm-hmm. It was clear that they had they'd spent their morning talking about the um, the issues of publicly financed elections and money in politics, especially here in the state of you know a very a very particular. It's not you know Oregon is not vastly different than other states, but Oregon has its own special relationship to uh, money in politics, and so that that level of focus and the fact that it was on the airwaves. And then what did they do? They invited listener calls. Mm-hmm. And it was just um, it warmed my heart today yeah. on a cold day that, that the listeners had the opportunity then to call in. And are those calls always the most useful? No, sometimes those calls were distractions. But the it's just such a n it's a neat thing. I I I love our radio show, Radio Survivor, and I would love to open the phones. And we can't do that, but we can ask the listeners. Send us a voice memo. Uh, yeah, to send us your thoughts or an email. Or send us an email. We'd be loved
0: to, we'd love to read it on the show. Um, or if you were like, hey, can you call me on Skype or on the phone and we can talk for three minutes? Right. We'd love to have um, you on for that as well.
1: Radio Survivor has, has uh, been on the air for a while and on the internet for a while. And we have had a handful of shows that were generated by people reaching out to us to say yeah. hi and telling us who they were and what they were up to. Uh, it's nice to always hear from you.
0: You know, I love... You bringing up that anecdote today uh, because it points to me why there's still a great import to something like community radio where they can open the phones and open the mics and talk about something at length. It's a rare form of radio and and it still exists on, you know, there are public radio stations around the country that produce locally, local public affairs programs where they can take a half hour, an hour and open the phones because on a national show. The problem is you, you've got, you know, as a caller, you're competing with with
1: hundreds of people trying to call in. Yeah.
0: Right there. And, and so there's just a it's it, it's not the it's not the it's fault. Extremely, of, it's extremely it's extremely rare
1: now that a call in show that's national is legitimately even a call in show the the whole way the the, the act of that curating it's live and, and I mean, everything yeah people are calling in but the amount of uh, gatekeepers and filters which you know in some ways makes the quality of the calls better And it's sort but of also, necessary yeah. yeah and necessary because of the scale but these local the idea of the local show and the the weirdos and the the people getting through those cracks it, it I'm I love it.
0: Yeah and it I mean and it's it's sharing the airwaves, right? And yeah. saying to somebody Okay, you don't have to make the commitment of becoming a volunteer and and the 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 2681012 sometimes 30 hours a week that many community radio volunteers or college radio volunteers make or public vol- radio volunteers at that matter. You don't have to make that commitment, but you can have this little piece of airtime through the simple act
1: of dialing yeah. the phone. And sometimes you get to I mean I've heard great shows where that's the opportunity for the caller to ask a question of their elected official, their local yeah. congressperson or the mayor or a city council person. Uh, it's wonderful. I also uh, you were list- you're talking about these um community radio programs that give people an opportunity to actually breathe and tell complicated stories and is- you know, explain the issues and that's also something that I think we both agree is what makes many podcasts uh, very valuable.
0: Yeah, but you bringing up that point of callers, right, reminds me of the fact of, by comparison, through through both happenstance and real structural barriers, podcasts are still very one-way. Yeah. You know, and, and, and even if you compare it to, like, say, YouTube, because YouTube is just one platform, right? It's, it's, it's monolithic, it's 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 a monopoly, right? If you're a YouTuber and you make YouTube videos, this is where your videos are, and there's a comment section, right? And and while people can't quite be in your video, with very active channels, you see lots of threads that go on. Yeah, you can see, and, and not just, and they're not all just thirteen-year-old. Uh, you know, kind of uh, level of humor. You could see some very productive threads where people really are discussing at length. I, I think the majority the of there.
1: terrible comments are are not thirteen year olds. I've met very, very yeah, many nice thirteen year olds.
0: Yeah, thirteen year old mentality. Yeah, wrapped up in a twenty seven like, year old or forty seven year old body. Again, I think
1: the worst the worst commenters are probably. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to put an age on it, but but let's just say that there's some old people enough to drink that, and drive. Yeah, there's some there's some people that are old enough to be grandparents that shouldn't be allowed to to True, comment on but, the internet.
0: You know, there is that back and forth. And with podcasting, I mean, the great part of it is there is no one monolithic platform, right? Right. That the podcast can be had in a variety of different software applications, a variety of different platforms, or right in your web browser. But it means that there's no kind of unified place for that conversation, right? There's no, you know, and so it can happen maybe on Twitter, it can happen
1: on a Facebook page. It depends on on how you develop your community around your podcast. Yeah. And if you're lucky enough to have... Um, a group of people who are active, you know, that might use, that might happen on. It could happen on a lot of different channels. I'm imagining Facebook groups and for some, podcasts. And some now use Discord, Discord which is not now. something
0: that we've tried yet. I know that. Um, for I, instance, I know people who do Discord. Yeah, and and or Slack is yeah. often. I know that there are networks that use Slack. So there's these other parallels, which which I think is great. And yet there's something distinctly different about Hello Caller. You're on the air.
1: Yeah, especially for a local radio. I mean, in this case, I'm talking about the city of Portland and, and its surrounding metro yeah, area. A very that, is, that is where this... A,
0: an interest community. Yeah,
1: and, and, and we're talking about local state government politics. It's just a very useful... You know, that's always been radio's superpower. It's about the place where it's located.
0: Well, you know, I think that dovetails very nicely with World Radio Day, which is February 13th. The, the theme is dialogue tolerance, and peace. And one of the key components of that is promoting dialogue and participation, right? And so uh, folks behind this include uh, AMARC, which is the global community radio system, as well as UNESCO, our supporters of World Radio Day. We don't hear much about it in the United States, Uh, but it it tends to be heard about globally. Um, But they say about this, UNESCO says, broadcasts provide a platform for dialogue And democratic debate over issues such as migration or violence against women can help to raise awareness amongst listeners and inspire understanding for new perspectives and paving the way for positive action. And I think that's why AMARC, the global community radio organization, is involved, because they see how community radio in particular. And it's not as if commercial radio, public radio, or or other sorts of radio can't do this, but time and again – when it comes to opening those phones and a very open door policy, inviting in lo- you know all sorts of local representatives to talk for not just two or three minutes or or, or, or a soundbite during a quick uh, package during the top of the hour news, it's it's community radio that is doing that. Um, And often now you can if you miss it on the air for so many community radio stations, you can catch it again on demand or as a podcast, which is a wonderful thing, which I think further opens it up, even though the dialogue often is happening right there on air. And so, you know, that's this week. And I think, you know, I just want to make sure folks know about it, know that there is um, a global vision for radio and it's used in so many different places. That uh, in so many different ways, and and that our vision, my vision here as somebody you know born in the United States, uh, growing up in North America, is one particular vision of what radio can be. But there are many visions all over the world where radio is knit into yeah. the fabric of, of civil discourse, civil society, and everyday life. Um, and it's something we definitely want to explore more here on Radio Survivor. We, we do try to get around. We've done
1: it before. And we'll do it again. Yes. We will talk to people who make radio outside of the United States, or on, and who've
0: studied it yeah. and and know so much more than we do. There's so much to learn, and it helps us to kind of reflect. And if you are somebody who makes radio, who makes podcasts, who makes media of other kinds, maybe there are things to learn or alliances and uh, cooperatives to to be formed. So
1: February thirteenth, we want to say happy
0: world radio happy day. world
1: radio day everybody Yeah, we talked about a lot of uh interesting stuff and links there's it's all up in the show notes today at radiosurvivor.com for episode number i think it's 180 wow we're closing our um, yeah.
0: 200 it's going to be a special day because for whatever reason century marks are interesting i, I and think exciting. i think
1: episode 169 was pretty cool because that's 13 squared i liked that episode great you'll just have you should to go trust back me and listen that. to, to yeah. episode number 169 thanks for spending another hour with us
0: see you next week everyone. can we cut a quick uh stiffer
1: patreon pitch for the uh radio, yeah. for the can podcast we, listeners can we just talk about spotify buying gimlet or do you need to keep uh, your mouth shut i could i can say something you want to do this is like a bonus episode you mean i want yeah i just want to talk about it with you <laughs> but right, yeah yeah,
0: yeah. I, I mean i can i can say what i can't say
1: Listeners, I have to jump in here uh, at the end of the podcast to say hello. Thank you so much for listening to the whole podcast. Uh, coming up, well, what was uh, what was happening there is that Paul and I were launching into a bonus episode of the podcast where we discuss the big news in podcasting that broke um, earlier in the week that uh, Spotify, <laughs> Spotify, as you know, internet radio giant, Spotify, web radio giant Spotify, if you can call it that. Uh, purchased Gimlet Media, which uh, is a relatively small compared to Spotify a podcasting company. Um, really exciting news. Really interesting news. It depends uh, where you come down uh, how you feel about it all. And Paul and I had a great conversation about it. I really enjoyed it. You know, Paul Reismandel is a podcasting insider and an outsider. I'm a podcasting insider <laughs> and an outsider. And so we each had our own uh, set of um, Uh, Opinions. I I kind of grilled Paul because uh, he definitely has been um, tracking, you know, the growth of the industry of podcasting, um, both as his uh, uh, day job there. He works for um, Stitcher and Midroll, but also prior to working for you know his the reason he was hired by Stitcher and Midroll is because of his interest. Um, and uh, fact-based, information-based interest in the growth of podcasting and where it was all heading. And um, I really enjoyed the conversation, so we're making that available, this half-hour episode where we discuss the big news of the week in podcasting, uh, just for Patreon supporters, and you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash radiosurvivor, or uh, on the show notes for today's episode, episode 180 on radiosurvivor.com. And uh, I should say, if you're not familiar with how Patreon functions, or at least how our Patreon is functioning, we're only, we're asking for a dollar, a dollar a month to have access to this bonus content. Um, So basically like a tip in the tip jar for your podcasting family. This half hour episode where we discuss the big news of the week in podcasting, it's not in the main part of the uh, episode. And I'm actually, Really happy about that. It's kind of it, It's nice to uh to have uh, something that's for the radio audience, a general interest. You know, every talking about um, these big ideas around community radio and the media. But then it's also really fun to sort of go deep into the weeds just for a web only audience. And Paul and I have done this a number of times recently. Um, and I'd love for you to check out the work. You know. We had an episode, two episodes ago, two weeks ago, where we, I hope you listened to the version that aired, Uh, we had a wonderful, (laughs) I'm glowing, I'm still glowing, we had a great interview with uh, two experts on Irish Pirate Radio and the history of Irish Pirate Radio. And the original interview was well over an hour, 88 minutes, I believe, if if I'm not mistaken. And I had to cut that down. I cut about a half an hour of it out. I added in a lot of archival tape to make that episode, that 59 minutes of radio, really glow. But there's a soft spot in my heart for that unedited version, especially because, again, just deep into the weeds. We talked about um, the engineers and the unique... Uh, <laughs> like uh D- DIY uh 1970s 1980s DIY ethic of the of the radio engineers in Ireland the pirates who were working um really just like at the edge of what was possible and and just doing it in a real uh dare I say like a steampunk ethos because that's that's where I that's what I know I've never <laughs> I've never set up my own radio station in the 80s Uh, including, uh, getting burned, (laughs) how much it hurts. Although I think that did make the cut in the radio episode, but we, we, there was more content about, um, you know, basically Paul Rees Mandel asked a follow-up question of our guests so they could just talk more about meeting these engineers and talking to these engineers and that follow-up question, um, hit the cutting room floor for, for the radio edit, but it's back in there. For the web-only Patreon edit, as well as a um, an admission right at the end that we had never heard the word "radio anorak before, so we got a little uh, etymology lesson from our guests about where where the word "radio is comes from. And then also uh, last week we had bonus content, uh, Patreon-only bonus content, where our guest um, Jacob Jacob Chopin. I hope that's his name. I hope that's your name, Jacob. Uh, Jacob was joining us because we were uh, objectifying him for being born in the 90s and to tell us about CDs, um, which was super fun. But it turned out that Jacob's real value <laughs> as a guest on Radio Survivor was his um, intense uh, expertise with uh, the cutting-edge radio engineering and web streaming world. Again, so in the weeds. Definitely not how I want to structure a radio show for a general audience of radio listeners, but it was a really fun conversation. Basically, Paul, who used to be in that industry of um, making web streams work early in the days of the internets, um, not that early, but early enough that it was harder uh, to obtain quality streams, Paul had a lot of... Fun questions. I was a fly on the wall uh, where Jacob explained how some amazing uh, live broadcasts were, were accomplished, you know, because KDVS, no, that's Davis, um, KFJC, that's the one, the one that Jennifer Waits works at uh, as a radio DJ and where Jacob worked. Uh, KFJC has done some just world class live musical broadcasts, uh, world class, and from around the world, from Iceland and from, I don't want to name any other countries and get it wrong, but they, they've they streamed those over the webs, and um, just the nuts and bolts facts of how the technicians of radio accomplished that was something that Paul really focused on there with Jacob in the, in the bonus content that's available to all of our Patreon uh, subscribers. That's patreon.com radiosurvivor. You can find a link or more information at at uh, radiosurvivor.com for today's episode, episode 180. So thank you so much uh, for listening to me uh, here at the end of today's episode. Um, it's a real pleasure and a privilege to bring you Radio Survivor. We love giving Radio Survivor away for free, and we hope that some of you out there who, who uh, listen to this podcast and value the podcast are also um, capable, available, have the privilege to to share with us some of your money so that we can uh do more. Uh that's my that's my pitch and I thank you so much for checking us out. Goodbye everybody.